In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is the second Sunday of Easter. Easter is seven weeks long. It is a week of weeks. Seven times seven, that is 49 days that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. That's a pretty good return on our 40-day Lenten investment to get 40 days of celebration and thanksgiving. The 50th day is what we call Pentecost, the celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But that's not all the counting that we're doing during this Easter season. The first counting that we're doing is another 40 days. But these 40 days are a celebration of the 40 days that Jesus appeared to the disciples and many others as he appeared in his resurrected form. We will count from Easter day until the 40th day, which is the day of the ascension. We'll count these days and we'll walk with the Lord and we'll think about and contemplate what it means that he's resurrected, what it means that we have hope to receive resurrected bodies. From the 40th day of the ascension, when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father until the 50th day of Pentecost, we will with the disciples enter into days of intense prayer. Ten days of intense prayer from ascension to Pentecost, when we too will pray for the salvation of the whole world. And so we are counting 40, and then we will count 10, and then we will have the completion of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As we think about these 40 days and coming out into uh, the day of resurrection and celebration, there's no better place for us to turn than to Genesis and the story of the flood. The story of Noah and his family for 40 days as they're in the the rain and as they're in the midst of this um, hiddenness and then the breaking forth of sunlight. The earth under the days of Noah was a vastly different place than today. Think of an earth where there is not enough sunlight to permeate the atmosphere to refract and make a rainbow. This was a dense, thick, wet earth where all the water of the oceans and all the water that now sits underneath the crust of the earth was in the upper atmosphere. A thick, rich kind of environment where people were able to live so much longer because of the lack of this kind of intense, bright light that we live with. And as the Lord remakes the earth and as he changes it and all the waters descend now from the heavens into the earth and under the earth, and as the the earth dries, the Lord reminds Noah, he remembers Noah, And he remembers and reminds Noah of the covenant, that is, of the agreement that Noah would live a righteous life, that he would live a life dedicated to the love of God and to his neighbor. We read that the Lord remembers Noah and that Noah remembers the Lord. And that isn't to say that they had forgotten one another, right? It's not like the Lord was saying, oh yeah, that Noah in the ark, I I need to remember him. Or it's not like Noah needs to say, oh yeah, there's a God in the heavens, right? I need to remember him and sacrifice. That's not the kind of remembering we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of remembering that we do in Holy Communion. It's not that we've forgotten the Lord. It's that we're rejoining. We are remembering. We are bringing our members back into relationship with him. We are joining ourselves out of loyalty and faithfulness. We are reasserting our pledge that we will be with him and that we will live lives according to his will and according to his path of sacrifice and according to his path of love we are rejoining ourselves to him and as uh, the Lord uh, dries the earth and as he 
uh, brings Noah into this new kind of creation, there is a choice that's before Noah, and the choice that's before him is before us, and it's symbolized by this raven and by this dove. The early fathers of the church reminded us of the kind of bird that a raven is. A raven is distracted by every bright, shiny bauble that it sees, and the raven loves to dig in the trash. The raven loves to dig into the dirt and to find trash to eat, right? To find old things. And the raven goes to and fro. The raven is never satisfied. The raven is always restless. The raven is always seeking the bright and the shiny and to gather things to itself. The raven is hungry for more things, more and more. And this is an appetite that we can give over to ourselves. We can give ourselves over to a kind of appetite that's never satisfied, that's always desiring to be filled. Or we can give ourselves over to the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is within us. And like the dove that goes forth from Noah and then back, goes out into the world and sends us out into the world and then brings us back to the Lord and sings us out into the world and brings us back to the Lord. And so we have this relationship of discernment and of understanding of coming into a new understanding of the world that we're in and then that spirit coming back to us and instructing us and the right way to live and the right time to go forth into the world. And so as we ask for the Holy Spirit to be alive in us so that we can discern how to go out and how to live in the world, there's no better place for us to turn than to the giving of the Holy Spirit here on the day of resurrection in the upper room. This day that we read about here in John chapter 20 is uh, the day of resurrection, and it's later in the day than what we read last week. You remember that the first portion of our resurrection story is early morning before the sun comes up. The myrrh-bearing women there to, to care for Jesus' body go to the tomb and they see that the tomb is empty. And you remember that they run to the apostles and the apostles uh, go to the tomb and they uh, look for the risen Lord. And then you remember that he appears to many along the way. And in that same day, later in the evening, he goes to the upper room. He goes to the place where they had been since they had entered into Jerusalem and they had uh, feasted at the Last Supper. And he meets them in that place and he breathes on them and he says, Peace be unto you, receive the Holy Spirit. This is that same peace that the dove uh, is symbolic of us. Uh, the, the dove is reminding of that peace and that olive branch of, of peace that the dove brings back to Noah. The Lord is saying, Peace be with you. And this is not the peace of the world. This is the peace that comes uh, from being in agreement with God by seeking His will and submitting to His ways. That is how we enter into peace. That is how we enter into rest. That we give up that searching to and fro and that hungering of the raven, but we rest in the Lord and we rest in His ways. A kind of rest that we can have in no other place but in God. And so Jesus says, receive that peace and receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them instruction that is the foundational instruction of the Christian church. He says, um, any sins that you forgive are forgiven and any sins that you retain are retained. This is the work of the church. This is the work of Jesus the Good Shepherd. We are calling to the world, with us repent. Repent of your sin and come back into agreement and life with God. And without repentance, there is no forgiveness to be offered.
I've said it sometimes, but I probably don't say it enough. When I write my sermons during the week, I'm preaching to myself. I'm preaching the things that I need to hear, which is probably why you all hear the same things kind of over and over again, because I'm a little thick-headed and I need to hear over and over again the same things, right? And I have preached before something that I don't think is true now. And what I've preached before is that, um, you know, we offer forgiveness, uh, but that doesn't mean that we trust, right? That you could... uh, Forgive somebody for stealing your cookie, but then maybe you're going to keep your plate a little bit farther away from them next time, right? (laughs) That we can uh, forgive some people, but then, you know, they've broken trust. Uh, The more that I've thought and prayed about that, the more I've realized that's a pretty weak kind of forgiveness, right? It's not a robust forgiveness. And the more that I've uh, thought about and, and read the scriptures and what they say about forgiveness, the more I've realized that the forgiveness that the Lord wants to offer to us is something much more um, powerful and, and profound. And that the relationship that we have to forgiveness is the one that we're going to um, practice with our neighbors and that we're going to receive from the Lord. He says uh, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, right? So we're telling the Lord, forgive me the way that I forgave them. And we've said over and over again, the Lord says, I will forgive you in the same way that you forgive others. And so the more that I think about that, the more that I think I really don't want the kind of forgiveness that I've been teaching, the kind of forgiveness that comes but doesn't necessarily include trust. Because the forgiveness that I want from the Lord is a full, complete, right? Forgiveness that is full of all trust and reconciliation that's whole. That means a complete healing of the relationship with God. That's the kind of forgiveness that we need to be practicing. The problem is, in the church we've offered a very quick kind of easy forgiveness. Hey, I'm sorry. And then we say, oh, I forgive you. And then we pretend like it never happened. And that really isn't forgiveness at all. You remember that in Ash Wednesday, we talked about at the invitation to a Holy Lent, the early church, and how the 40 days of Lent were used to bring people back into the church that had been excluded from the fellowship before. Do you remember that? And the invitation to Ash Wednesday? And sometimes we look back in that and we think, oh, they were really strict, right? That early church, they were really, you know, kind of kind of hard on each other. But maybe that's not the case at all. Maybe they were offering a fuller forgiveness than what we we're offering. They were offering a chance for people to say, I have sinned against God and against the church, and I'm going to enter into a path of repentance that's going to show amendment of life. And I'm not going to do it by myself, but I'm going to do it with the body of the church. So I'm going to walk alongside members of the church and I'm going to learn the right way to live. And I'm going to restore and be restored my relationship to God and the church. And that takes time. Just like if a spouse was to take out a credit card for thousands of dollars without the other spouse knowing, uh, right? We don't expect them just to say, oh, I forgive you, no big deal, right? There's going to, it's going to take time for that trust, for that repair to be enacted, right? We're going to have to show amendment of life. 
If one spouse has been aggressive or violent against the other, we don't just say, oh, I forgive you, and then pretend like nothing ever happened. We're going to have a kind of reconciliation that takes time, that takes time and repentance and healing. It reminded me of a, a major issue that faced the church in the 4th century. This would be like 300 to about 320 AD. There was a persecution that especially took place in North Africa. And uh, the emperor was requiring, especially clergy, to renounce um, their faith in Christ at penalty of execution. And part of their renunciation of Christ was to give up their gospel book. Right? They weren't binding Bibles all together at that time. They would have been too big. They didn't have the ability to do that. And so when somebody would become a priest, they would get the Gospels bound together. right? And, and that was a symbol of their priesthood or their diaconate. And so the, the Romans were asking them to give up their Gospel books or they would be killed. And many gave them up. Not everybody stood for the faith. And then it became a major, um, a major problem in the church. What do we do with these people who have denied Christ, many of whom were clergy? How can we allow them back? And there were many who said they can't come back. That's it. They're cut off. There's no way to bring them back. We can't rebaptize them. This is a sin that's too great. They've rejected Christ. And so they'll never come back. There were some that did advocate rebaptism. And then there were some led by St. Augustine who said, no, we need to be able to bring them back into the church, but it's going to take time. And he proposed and administered a period much like a Lenten discipline over a year or several years, whereby the people who had renounced Christ would come back. And many times that meant that some of them were executed. Because it required a public profession of faith. They had to do what they had refused to do before. Which was to stand for their faith. It also reminds me of perhaps the most powerful transformation in the life of the church in the 20th century. And many people would point to some miracles um, perhaps that happened or some acts of ecumenism. To me, one of the most powerful, remarkable societal transforming things that happened to the church was the 12-step movement, which started in the Anglican church in England and America with three steps. And it was basically, I've sinned against God through my addiction. I can't do it by myself. I need to submit to God's will and control. And then through God's help, I will be able to assert self-control over my life. It was a simple process. And it became 12 steps and has transformed our society and our way that we understand people that overcome addiction. And it requires a public right statement and that there's going to be a process, that there's going to be time, that it's going to take our whole lives to come back into relationship and to, to reestablish trust. And so it's a real forgiveness that takes place because there's a real repentance and a real transformation. And it requires saying, I truly repent. I have, I, I have sinned and I need to change. 
And sometimes people want to just avoid that altogether through lots of different ways. And sometimes they want to do it in, in relationships. They want to do it in marriages and family life. They want to pretend like we don't have any arguments, right? Like we never disagree with anything. That is not people. That's not what, how people live, right? People disagree with one another. People have differences, right? They see things in different ways and people hurt each other's feelings, Right? They get their feelings hurt. And they, and they, uh, and they uh, get angry. And they hold resentments and grudges. And we've had that happen here at Jesus the Good Shepherd. Right? We've had to, to go to one another and we've had to apologize and we've had to change and we've had to, to practice day in, day out how to live together as a family. And that doesn't make us weak. That has made us stronger. Just like St. Peter is saying here in his letter, in the very first chapter of 1 Peter, he's saying, we are refined by difficulties, by trials, like gold. Gold isn't made weaker in fire. Gold is made stronger in fire. We're not made weaker through repentance and through overcoming our hurts and our misdeeds. We become stronger when we repent and we come back into relationship with one another, it makes us stronger. And it requires that we all say, we're not doing it my way or your way. We are seeking God's way. We are seeking His hope, His resurrection, His life, His will. Our focus is upon Him. Our hope is in Him. Our faith is in Him. And we believe that our lives can be transformed, that they can be made new. At least that's what we pray in the Collect of the Day today. We pray that we may show forth in our lives what we profess in our faith. That we may show forth in our lives what we profess in our faith. May we be transformed by grace, made whole and new through the power of repentance and forgiveness. And may we be transformed and enter into a newer and stronger life in Christ with one another. Amen. Amen.